Good morning, everyone. We're going to be um, hearing from Patricia Pont today. And uh, I can't believe it, but I'm actually in my seventh year. This is the longest I've ever been anywhere. It's the longest I've ever lived in a house. And it's really allowed me to have um, the privilege of seeing kids grow up in our church. And I've, I feel like I've seen Patricia grow up, and she's grown up to be an amazing woman that I respect and uh, adore. So Patricia, come on up and tell us your story today. Today, my story is about moving from Spain to the U.S. My journey with God started rather simple. I was born in Spain to a black American mother and a white Spanish father who faced racism in my home country. But their love kept them together, and from that love, my siblings and I were born. I lived in Spain for the first 12 years of my life, and I have been attending church since before I could remember. I've always been different in almost every aspect in my life, which has made it hard to feel like I fit in anywhere. My faith was no different. My dad is not a Christian and my mom is, so finding my own understanding of faith was somewhat of an uphill battle. At the age of 12, we moved from Spain to the US. The move seemed okay. Not great though, because I was leaving all that I knew to erect to a place even more unknown. But little did I know how little I would remember all of those years in Spain and how much I would grow up in a foreign place. My life felt like I was going a million miles a minute and school was about to start, and all I I remember thinking was, do not speak. If you don't speak, you can mess up. You can mispronounce anything, and no one can make fun of you. In that moment, I should have stopped. I should have prayed and trusted that God was going to take care of me. But sometimes the smallest things seem like the most important, especially in middle school and high school. Slowly, my silence handicapped me. I made mistakes, I mispronounced words, and for some reason, even after some English classes, I still could not hear the difference between teacher T-chart and T-shirt. To tell you the truth, those years are mostly a blur now. A piece of art in our home, La Menina, is a wooden sculpture in reference to a painting, Las Meninas, by Diego Velázquez. The wooden sculpture is a wooden woman who is slender, but the decorative aspects of the piece on each side of her body make her seem as though she has the figure of a real woman. Velázquez's piece represents complexity in an enigmatic composition. Today I'm a senior in high school and language is no longer a barrier. I am complex and enigmatic and trying to change that to fit in is not worth it. But I still find myself overtaken by everyday struggles and forget that my self-worth comes from God. I'm wanting to become a lawyer to take part in fixing what I believe is a broken system and to protect kids that are in need. But I'm struggling to stop, breathe, and pray to let God take over, to let God guide me towards my next step in life going into college. So when I feel like everything's going a thousand miles a minute and I can't catch up, I need to remind myself to stop, breathe, pray, and let God take over. Thank you for listening to my story. Today our reading is from 2 Corinthians 3, 13 through 18 from the New International Version. We are not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull. For to this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ it is taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone tur turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image 
with everlasting, ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Thank you. Well, good morning again, everyone. I was trying to think of a t-shirt teacher joke, but it just, I couldn't put it together. Uh, I want to start with a story today, a sermon titled, Free to Love. Those are tulips in uh, our great state here. Uh, I have a friend named Henry, and the best way to describe him is that he's a simple man. A simple, simple man. Think Forrest Gump, or maybe you at 4 a.m., or at four years old, or uh, your four-year-old dog. He's just a simple, tell me what to do and I'll do it kind of guy. My friend Henry. His wife finally came to embrace Henry as he is, and not what she wanted him to be. She had a little funeral service for the husband she always wanted, and then said yes to Henry. And she embraced what Michael Scott calls style three in the office, a compromise. And she instructed him to buy tulips for her every Tuesday. And she even named it. She calls it Tulip Tuesdays. And he loves it because it's clear. He knows what to do. He knows when to do it. And she's come to find joy in it. And they now have this wonderful relationship mediated by this law in their marriage, Tulip Tuesdays. The moral of the story is that there is a clear and directly inversely proportional relationship between laws and relationships, right? The greater the trust in a relationship, the less applicable the law or rule becomes. You trust that person. You are in relationship. So we have three principles that emerge out of our simple friend Henry's story. Number one, as trust increases, law decreases. So if a friend or a spouse or your boss trusts you 100%, you have no rules governing your behavior. You don't need them, right? And if there is a total breakdown of the relationship, then you call a lawyer. That's how that works. The second principle is that the law exists as a placeholder for the relationship, for trust. It was never meant to land on law. Law was a means to get to trust. That's the way it always is. That's the way it has always been. And then the third principle we see is that trust is the goal. It is the ideal. It is the final destination. It's what the Bible, uh, the law uh, is what the Bible calls a tutor. Just the ladders we climb to get to our destination. The three principles of trust and law. Under law, when we have a rule or a law that's hanging over us with a disproportionate consequence, then we always labor underneath a fear of death. I have to keep this law. I can't do this. I have to do this. I remember this one time. My family and I were coming back from Vancouver, British Columbia, and uh, we were coming from Richmond for, uh, up there where all the Asians are, and we had bought a box of the most 
delicious, ripe, bright yellow mangoes we had ever tasted in our lives. And we got to the border, and the U.S. border agent asks me, do you have any fruit or vegetation to declare? And I had totally forgotten that they asked this question. And I was like, well, I could lie because chances of me getting checked, I mean, I got a wife next to me, I got four kids, they're going to totally just trust me, they're going to let me go. If I say no, it'll be fine and we get to have our mangoes. But, but if they do check, what happens to me? Am I going to jail? You know? Is it going to go on my record? Am I going to be banned from Vancouver forever? I love going up there. So what do I do? But in reality, what happened was, yes! Just a little pipsqueak of a man I became. <laughs> and I declared the mangoes, and he grabbed them, he confiscated them, shook his, wagged his finger at us, and then off he let us, uh, you know, he let us into the, uh, back into the country, and here we are. But the fact is, at that moment, when I was surprised by his question and sort of the emotional intensity of the context of being at the border and this powerful, all-powerful being asking me this very pointed question, my mind went completely blank. I did not think of all the reasons why I could have lied or I could have held on to my mangoes. All I felt were feelings. I lost all brain in the front part of my brain. That's where imagination and executive functioning lives up here. And all the blood was, re blood was redirected to the back part of my brain. And just rudimentary brain science here. In those fight or flight moments, your body releases a bunch of cortisol and adrenaline into your body. And you are in your fight or flight mode. You know, in your reptilian brain. And all you can think are just feelings of fear and fight or flight or anger. These are most primitive brain. And this brain is totally shallow. It doesn't have any imagination at all. It does not allow you to think beyond the immediate survival. And that's all I was. I was completely flooded with emotions and chemicals. And yes, is all that came out. And then afterwards, as I was driving away, I was thinking of all these things I could have said and done. And we've all experienced some version of this. Now, Oscar Wilde, uh, he says, he has this really great quote. He says, seriousness is the only refuge of the shallow. Meaning when you're under law, laboring underneath a fear of death, all you have are shallow thoughts. All you are is serious. Your imagination, your creative, creativity, and your executive functioning, it's all shut down. That's where the breadth and depth is in the front of your brain. In the back of the brain, all you have is shallowness, fight or flight. And this, my friends, is the power of legalism. When you are living by rules, that means you are living under consequences. You're living under a semblance of control. But you don't really have it because you're disempowered from the consequences. Things are just going to happen to you and you have to survive. Now, this video that we watched, I think it's one of the most imaginative, creative things I've ever seen. Once in a while, some video like this goes viral and I'm captured by it. Now, on a scale of 1 to 10, if like 0 is total fight or flight 
and 10 is like the creative power of God himself, what number would you give the creators of this uh, video? For me, it's like a 9 or a 9.9. It is just amazing. I don't think I could have created this, uh, you know, this kind of mechanism to save my life. This person that created this video was not under a fight-or-flight mechanism. He or she was completely free, relaxed, and having fun and being playful and imagining, and all the while tapping into the brain power that they have, and now we get to enjoy this. Abraham Maslow, another uh, psychologist I quote a lot, created this uh, thing called the hierarchy of needs. He uh, came into uh, play when all therapists were focused on what's wrong with people. He said, well, let's kind of put a press uh, pause on that and let's think about how to help people live the good life, not just get to zero, but what's beyond zero. After we fix people, what is there? So he created this hierarchy of needs, and he said, when people don't feel physically safe, if they're cold or if they're hot or if their bellies are empty, they can't think past these immediate needs. We have to meet these lower hierarchy of needs first so that they get out of their brainstem and are able to imagine a better life. Now, I think about um, Jesus and the way he lived his life. You know, everybody around him was living under the law. You know, it was either the Roman law or the Jewish law. And all these laws had consequences, severe consequences. Like if you were caught stealing, they might chop off your hand. Think about that. If you're a woman and you burned breakfast, your husband might divorce you. These are some serious consequences. I'm serious. I'm being totally literal. These are written in the code. Imagine you just the toaster just stays down for just 30 seconds longer and your husband divorces you. It's a ridiculous way to live. You're living with, under constant stress and duress. And born into a midst of people groups that are living this way, Jesus starts hanging out with so-called sinners. You know, and the sinners were uh, prostitutes and tax collectors. These are the, you know, sort of the named category of sinners that we have in the Gospels. And these uh, Jewish people and the Roman uh, leaders, they did not know what to do with a guy who wasn't living under duress. He was creative and imaginative and free in the way he carried about. You know, another example is the way he healed. He had such unconventional healing methods. Like he would spit in the dirt, make mud, and spread it over a blind man's eyes. It's not like there was precedence for that. Or he would just use words. He would tell a centurion, I don't need to see your servant. He's already well. Just by the fact that you thought I could just use words. I will use my words and your servant as well. Just go home. Like, who does that? In fact, it sounds kind of rude. You know, and then his followers and people who were intrigued by him started catching the virus that Jesus had. 
And so they did unconventional things too, like a, a Pharisee, a Jewish leader who had to live by the law in daylight, found a way to come to him by night so that he can ask Jesus his real questions because he didn't want to be seen by his contemporaries. Or we have other friends who had a, a paralyzed friend. So because they couldn't get to Jesus, they, they carved out a hole on the top of somebody's house. Some scholars think it was maybe Jesus' house. Right? It was in the fishing village, maybe where Jesus lived with his disciples. And uh, they lowered their friend through the roof. And Jesus, being the unconventional guy that he was, says, this is amazing. This is not, uh, you know damage to my house, but this is the demonstration of faith. Then Jesus heals the paralytic, and he does it not by saying be healed or touching him or making mud, but by saying your sins are forgiven. How is forgiving sins related to healing? Nobody knew at that time in that kind of direct way. You know, they thought maybe you can be cursed or something, but for a human being to forgive another human being, that was totally unprecedented. Or how about the time that Jesus went into enemy territory and hung out with a Samaritan woman in broad daylight and received drinking water from her. So shocked, the Bible says, the disciples couldn't even talk to Jesus about it because they were afraid of making public and explicit the scandal that this obviously was. I mean, I don't know how much we can appreciate it in our day today. But Jesus was a radically imaginative person because he didn't live under fear. But he had a loving relationship with God. And God released him and said, son, I trust you. You do whatever you need to do. Get the job done. How you do it will reflect who you are. And I trust who you are. And so Jesus just went about and did his job. And at the end of the job, he declared, it is finished. And when he was finishing the job, it didn't look like he had done the job at all. His disciples had totally abandoned him. He had effectively made no change, no dent, and he died. He got caught. It does not look like mission accomplished. To his dying breath, he was unconventional and free. You know, and if uh, Jesus uh, is too far away, what about his disciples, his church? We read in the book of Acts that his followers wrestled with the idea of eating meat sacrificed to idols, which was absolutely explicitly forbidden in the law. Complete paradigm shift, overturning of thousands of year old practices. And the church had to deal with it, but led by the Spirit, they were set free to understand what the law had always been pointing to in the first place. That there are no such things as idols, actually, because there's only one true and living God. And now you know this, and you know this God loves you. And so what you eat is just about the body. Don't worry about it. And it took them a long time to figure this one out. Or forsaking circumcision. This was a thousand, this was established, established by the founder of their faith. 
I mean, God tried to kill Moses before he finished doing his job because Moses wasn't practicing circumcision properly. This was a big deal, and yet the New Testament comes along, and now we learn that it's not about the circumcision of the flesh, but it's really about the circumcision of the heart that is setting yourself aside and apart for God. That the physical act of circumcision was just an arrow pointing to the circumcision of the heart all along. It's not about the rule of doing circumcision. What about forsaking the sacrificial system altogether? This was such a cornerstone of how they related to God is by making the right sacrifices at the right time. And then Jesus comes along and they say, yeah, Jesus fulfilled it all. All the blood and guts that we shed all these thousands of years that was pointing to the one sacrifice, Jesus Christ himself. Really? Yeah, that was the whole point. Forget the ladder. We've arrived. Really? Yeah. It's been fulfilled. Now imagine being in that context, trying to wrap your brains around these radical paradigm shifts. If that's too far, what about our very own Bud Palmberg? I don't know him as well as many of you do because he's been in your life for longer. But one of the things I've heard is that Bud, when he was in my position, used to hang out with prostitutes on a regular basis. It's true. I don't know any more, and I don't want to know beyond that. That's between Bud and Donna and God in that order. But he was practicing imagination and freedom because he had a trust in God, and God trusted him. And he was able to move freely without fearing judgment, without fearing temptation, without fearing anything. He was walking the streets. How and why was he able to do that? My version of that is when I first came, I was drawing from literature and the sciences that's outside of the Bible to help inform and shed light and add substance to Scripture. And many people in this church could not, they couldn't figure out what to do with it. Is Peter a Christian? Does he actually believe in Jesus? Does he care about the Bible? What do we do with this guy? And here you all are. Imagination and creativity directly results from being released from the fear of death, which is under law. The Old Testament is about the law. And the Bible says that we have been under the tutelage of the law until Jesus comes to get us out from under the law because you and I, we cannot, we do not know how to get out from under the law. The only way we know how is to just go under another set of rules. That's how we like to do it. It's called Christian legalism. We don't judge people the way we used to. We just judge people the new way. And when that new way gets old, we just come up with a newer way. And Jesus is the one who sets us free from the fear of death, from stress. And only in Christ, as today's scripture says, the veil is taken away. We can see the truth about the three principles that we named today. That one, when trust 
increases, law decreases. That trust ultimately is meant to displace the law. And three, that trust was always the final destination. In Christ, we have arrived. The law is not a sustainable way to be in any kind of relationship. Trust is the only way to be in a relationship. The law is meaningless as far as relationships are concerned because if there is a law, none of us are relating to each other. We're just all mediated by the law. You say don't, and I say I won't. And then you say, did you? And I say, no, I didn't. And we're just referring to the law. You relate to the law, and I relate to the law. You give the law, I keep the law. We are never relating directly to each other as long as the law is in place. It's a safety mechanism just in case the relationship isn't there or it fails, but it's never meant to be the defining reality of the relationship. From the beginning, you and I, you and God, we are meant to trust, to be in direct relationship to each other. And for us to trust, we have to have a changing or changed nature. It's who you are has to be fundamentally different. Who I am has to be different. And the text says that it is the Holy Spirit that is given to us because Jesus forgives us of our sin. There is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. Once his blood is shed, we receive the Holy Spirit. And once we have the Holy Spirit who is in us, then from the inside, our nature can begin to change. And once our nature changes, then we can begin to trust. And once we are in a trust relationship, we are able to be free to love and do and move as the Spirit leads us. So here is the process. First, we have Jesus that we have been waiting for. He cleanses us of our sin. He provides a way for us to be forgiven of our sins. Our conscience can be made clean. And once we are clean, we can have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And he begins to work not just on our behavior, but our nature. And once the nature is changing, we begin to build our trust with God and with each other. And then finally now, we are in a direct relationship. And once we are, we are free to love. Our imagination has been released. Our system isn't flooded anymore. We, are, we have the presence of mind to see clearly and to know who we are, and to know what we're not, and to move about freely on this earth to do God's bidding. This is God's plan. The law wasn't plan A, and then it failed, and then Jesus had to come as plan B. That's not how it works. Jesus was always plan A. The law was just a tutor, a mediator. And now the true mediator has come, and it's Christ. 
I want to help concretize this as we end. In our church, we've been talking about belong, become, engage. One of the ways that I think we're supposed to belong to each other is through the act of radical acceptance. That we're not meant to be afraid of each other or afraid of the culture, afraid of people outside of the walls of the church. But we can accept them exactly as they are, not because we are agreeing. Acceptance isn't about agreeing. Acceptance is the only door through which transformation happens. And by accepting people, you are saying, I want to say yes to the relationship first so that should spirit-led moments and opportunities arrive, the relationship is available. But if I start with rejection because you don't fit and I haven't accepted you as you are, then there's no recourse when opportunities come. And so radically accepting one another, holding that space instead of positions so that we can be free to love should the moment arrive. Or the second one, become. That we can have an integrating faith. We don't have to create false dichotomies between the truths that are explicit in Scripture and the truths that are implied in Scripture that the rest of the world has access to through other disciplines. That's all God's truth. We can't be afraid, for example, of science because God created all the principles of science. In fact, I think Christians should be the leaders at understanding how the world works, how God created the world to work. We should be leading in all disciplines, philosophy and literature and the sciences. And we should be integrating that into our faith instead of feeling threatened by things that are outside of the Bible. Once the what and the why is established, the how, is that just interesting? And third, engage. That we can be engaged in the work of loving people with the full capacity of our brains, led by the Holy Spirit in our hearts, acting with the energy and the breath that God gives us. To be truly set free to love means you have to accept that Jesus came to set you free from the law of sin and death. And then you say yes to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to work on your nature, to be in relationship with God. I don't know how this is landing on you today, but as I prepare this, this was in one sense totally basic, but in another sense totally revelatory to me. And there's a kind of order and sequence to how God is designing our change, a sanctification process. So I want to invite you now to close your eyes. And I want you to just pray through the steps with me here. The first step is to say, God, I don't want to live under the law anymore. I don't want to fear punishment or some curse or some bad luck or some way that I can mess up my life. It creates anxiety and stress, and I'm not my best self when I'm living under the law. And so pray for Jesus to forgive you of all of your sin, all the ways that you are messed up and incomplete and broken and willfully disobedient, however ways you are not living 
your ideal life. Ask Jesus to cover it in his blood. And then ask for the Holy Spirit. Say, God, be in me. Change me from the inside. Change not just what I do, but what I want to do. And help me to trust you. And I want you to trust me. I want to be in this trust relationship with you. That's not mediated by law or fear. And I want to be set free to love. God, we pray for these things. Wherever each person is at in this room, meet us there and minister to us in Jesus' name.